0: And we return to the Gospel of Luke, the 21st chapter, picking up where we left off last week at verse 20. That will be our sermon text, so once you find that in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, verse 20, then put a finger there, if you would, and turn back in the Bible to the prophet Daniel, the second chapter. This will be our Old Testament reading, Daniel 2. It's a lengthy reading, but it's an exciting reading. And uh, it's very interesting what we have in Daniel chapter 2. It will prepare us for our sermon text in Luke 21. Daniel, of course, takes place during the Babylonian captivity. Daniel is among the first of the captives. Daniel 2, beginning at verse 1. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled and sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, the command for me is firm if you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare its interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked "'anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. "'Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. "'There's no one else who could declare it to the king "'except gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. "'Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious "'and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon.' So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter, so Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, either wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However... There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while you lay on your bed. As for you, O King, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me, more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until the stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these In pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay... They will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true. And its interpretation is trustworthy. Now let's turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, beginning at verse 20. Jesus is continuing his Olivet Discourse there on the Mount of Olives, just across the Kidron Valley from the east wall of Jerusalem. And he says to his disciples, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to the people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory But when these things begin to take place straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Amen. May God add his blessing to our reading and understanding of this word. Conventional wisdom says that last year The year 2020 was the year the world fell apart. That was the year of the pandemic, the year of the contested national elections, the year we lost trust in the media that supplies us with so much of our information or misinformation. That was the year of betrayal, That was the year the foundations were destroyed, or seemed to be. We all remember it, and to this day we're still dealing with the fallout from last year, 2020. In our passage today, a discourse to his disciples on Mount Olivet in the early spring of the year A.D. 30, our Lord Jesus Christ is bracing his embryonic church for what's going to feel to that generation as though the whole world were indeed collapsing around them. In this Olivet Discourse, Jesus is speaking of the end. He is. But the question is, the end of what? What? He's speaking of the end of the world as those 12 disciples who were with him, as they knew it, the end of the age, the end of the old covenant by which God had governed the world for the past 15 centuries, ever since the age of Moses. He's speaking of the end of the Jewish world, the end of the Jewish universe, which was centered, of course, right there in Jerusalem and the temple. That first generation of the Lord's Church would not pass away until all these things that we're reading about have been accomplished. And this morning we're going to consider briefly how and why the end of the age, that end of the age, was going to come about. And the how is already known to many of you. We know that 40 years later, 40 years later, in the spring of A.D. 70, three full years into the Jewish war of insurrection against Rome, at least three legions of the Roman army under Titus surround Jerusalem, which at that time happens to be filled with Passover pilgrims. It is early spring, after all. Jerusalem happens to be filled with Passover pilgrims from all over the Jewish world. The Roman legions come, and they lay siege to the city. And within six months, they breach the city walls. And literally, they take the city apart, piece by piece, stone by stone, as only Roman engineers could do. A Jewish historian there on the scene, but working as a translator and negotiator for the Romans, was a young man by the name of Flavius Josephus. And his written account of the Jewish wars gives us a blow-by-blow account of the Roman campaign and what followed. Now, it's important to remember that Josephus was not a Christian man. Josephus was not a Christian, and for that reason, his account is all the more remarkable for its laying out as accomplished history what the Lord Jesus here has laid out for us. Forty years earlier, he laid it out for us as prophecy. Josephus records it as prophecy accomplished or history. So Josephus tells us how it all came about without the least bias toward Christianity. Josephus isn't bending the historical truth of the fall of Jerusalem to agree with the Olivet Discourse, not at all. Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse, is simply telling the disciples the plain truth about the future of the nation that rejects him as Messiah. And Josephus, much later, 40 years or more later, tells us how it happened. The Olivet Discourse, though, gives us what the infant church of the first century A.D. needed to know. Two things in particular rise to the surface from our passage today. First of all, he's telling his disciples, you disciples need to know that through it all, your covenant king, who's very soon to ascend and take his seat at the throne of heaven, your mediatorial king cares for his faithful, obedient people. whatever your circumstances. However dire, however hopeless your circumstances may seem when you are actually living through them, he cares for you. That's the first thing you have to know. And we sing about that protective covenant care and confidence in the Psalms, don't we? Psalm 3, for instance. I lay down, slept, And woke again. The Lord is keeping me. I will not fear ten thousand men entrenched surrounding me. Or the 91st Psalm. God's own truth, your shield and buckler, You will fear no ill by night, Nor the shafts in daylight flying, Nor disease that shuns the light or the plague that wastes at noonday. At your side, ten thousand fall. You will only see this judgment, which rewards the wicked all. Beloved, if God's word is your shield and buckler, if his word is your infallible means of defense, then the devastation that sooner or later befalls the covenant-breaking nation isn't going to reach you. It can't. The psalmist says, by the Spirit, you're only going to see it. In the day of vengeance, your covenant king and savior isn't going to throw his beloved church under the Roman bus along with the apostate nation. He won't. In fact, he gives very specific directions here how his church is to keep from being destroyed, along with the 97,000 captives who were taken and 1.1 million Jews who, according to Josephus, were slaughtered in the fall of Jerusalem. What particular steps does Jesus direct in order to keep his tender young church safe throughout the coming days of vengeance? Well, the steps he lays out are rather counterintuitive, aren't they? They're not what you'd expect. And they're going to mean some real inconvenience to the church, too, to God's people. Real inconvenience. But the church's faithful obedience to these counterintuitive, inconvenient commands of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to save their lives and the lives of their families when the Romans do come to surround and starve and slaughter the people of Jerusalem, as they did 40 years later. I say they're counterintuitive commands because intuition tells us that when there's danger, take cover. When there's danger, get yourself to safety. Well, that's... Exactly what city walls are for, isn't it? They're for the city's safety, for the city's security. So get yourself into a walled city, especially a walled city that's set high up on a hill. That's the place to be. Intuition would tell you that, and it's often the case, except in this case, it isn't where you want to be. behind the walls of the city of Jerusalem is not where you want to be when the judge of all the earth targets that particular walled city for destruction. Think back in your Bible history, about 14 centuries. Okay? Jericho was a walled city, wasn't it? So were a great many of the cities of Canaan, according to the 12 spies Moses sent in from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the place. In fact, they were fortified to heaven, cities with high walls fortified to heaven. That was the spies' report to Moses. And this very city of Jerusalem was a walled city too, back when Nebuchadnezzar came and took it in 587 B.C. You see, good history and good theology combine together to show us how unimpressed God is with the fortifications and high walls of man. God sits in heaven and laughs at these things, he scoffs at them. So, when you see the Roman armies coming to surround Jerusalem, then don't go into the city, get out. While you can get out and don't waste a single minute, he says, in other places. He says, don't waste a single minute going back to get your stuff. Just start running and keep running. Out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, into the hills. Because these are days of vengeance. friends, whenever God's people perceive that his judgment is ripe and ready to fall upon a Christless city, a Christless nation, a Christless uh, institution, a Christless church, when we perceive that God's judgment is ripe and ready to fall, then the Lord's command is firm for your own safety and that of your children. Don't Go there. Don't stay there. Flee to the hills. So by these clear advanced directives, our Lord Jesus Christ demonstrates the tender care that he has for the safety and security of his obedient covenant people and their little ones. It's counterintuitive, certainly, to actually come out from among the wicked and the world and their ways. It's immensely inconvenient to have to leave home, leave that all behind and venture out into the unknown. It's counterintuitive. It is inconvenient. But this is the way of life. And these are the paths of righteousness. Even though they may lead you through the valley of the shadow of death, this is the way to go. Out there is life. Out there is liberty. Not here in Jerusalem. That's rejected the Messiah. Because destruction is in fact coming. And that day of vengeance is not far off. Forty short years for that generation. That first generation. Forty years away. Even as he defends his covenant people, the church, safe at last hidden in the fields and the meadows, hidden in the hills and hollows of the earth, even as he defends us, our ascended and reigning king destroys all his adversaries and ours. And we've waited a long time, the people of God have, for this day of vengeance, haven't we? We've been waiting for Christ's overthrow of the wicked, the ruin and public humiliation of the persecuting covenant breaker, whether he be Jew or Gentile. This would be in large measure the answer to the psalmist's repeated question in so many psalms, how long, O Lord, how long will these people prosper? How long will we, your people, have to endure And it's not from hardness of heart that his people pray for the fall of Christless cities, states, nations, and institutions. We certainly don't wish them ill. We wish no one ill. Rather, we fervently wish them repentance and faith in their rightful King and ours, the Lord Jesus Christ. We earnestly pray for the day that the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the earth. That's what we're praying for. It's not from hardness, but tenderness of heart that we wish them these things, wish these things for our persecutors. Because look what awaits them behind the city walls. Look what awaits everyone who flees for refuge, not in God, who is our refuge and our strength, but the city walls of men. Look at verse 23, if you will. What awaits the Christless city, state, nation, or church is woe. Just woe. What awaits them is the complete removal of his divine protection and care. And dear ones, let that sink in. Let it sink in. In the spring of the year A.D. 70, the crucified, risen, ascended, enthroned, and reigning Lord Jesus Christ left the people of Jerusalem to their own devices. He turned away his face and let the Romans do their work of vengeance. But even before the Romans breached the city walls of Jerusalem that autumn, five or six months later, Even before that happened, Josephus tells us that the internal strife within the city was tearing it apart from within. Because there within the encircled city was starvation. There within the city was the overcrowding of more than a million people, and there was armed conflict. Within the temple itself, there was armed conflict and death and fear all around, and the abject despair that comes upon the covenant breaker and his children. As he tells the tale of the Romans taking the city that fall after a siege of over five months, Josephus offers the personal opinion that the Romans were actually doing Jerusalem a great favor By putting them out of their self-inflicted misery. Forty years before. The great and tender hearted Jesus. Has said of the most vulnerable. The women and the children of Jerusalem. Woe to those. Who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Which is to say, Rome is going to have its way with the people of Jerusalem until the Romans decide they're done with Now, the Bible suggests to us that there both have been and yet again will be certain distinct times and periods of history, redemption history, that are so extreme, so out of the ordinary, whether for glorious deliverance or for abject terror, times that are so extreme that mere historical narrative isn't up to the task of properly describing them. when describing such unique times, whether they occurred in the past relative to us or whether they occur in the future relative to us. The Holy Spirit often resorts to the use of what is called apocalyptic language, as Jesus does here, beginning in verse 25. What does he say? He says, There will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And on the earth, dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And we ask ourselves, whatever could he mean by these things? And when they read them, imagination takes many people off on a wild ride into the distant future. They figure, well, he must be speaking here about the end of the world, the end of history, the end of the created universe. He must be talking about those things, which might be a reasonable interpretation until we find it running up against verse 32, which we'll get to next time. But verse 32 says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things are accomplished. This generation, the Olivet discourse is not about the far, far distant future. It's not. It's about certain redemptive events occurring there in the first century A.D., events destined to take place before that apostolic generation had passed away. So, that being the case, what do we do with these apocalyptic words of Jesus? What we do, friends, is let Scripture interpret Scripture. For instance... Jesus speaks of sun, moon, and stars. Is he speaking literally of heavenly bodies? If he is, then when exactly did this take place in that generation? If he isn't, then where do we find the key to unlock this expression? Let me suggest to you that after their creation in the very first chapter of the Bible, After their creation, sun, moon, and stars next appear together in the dream of one of the sons of of Jacob. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis 37, verses 9 and 10. Genesis 37, 9 and 10. It says, now Joseph had still another dream. And related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I've had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? It's pretty clear that Jacob interpreted the expression sun, moon, and stars as a metaphor for himself and his children, which is to say the whole nation of Israel. It's reasonable then, isn't it, to think that Jesus, who of course was steeped in scripture from his youth, Jesus used the same metaphor in the same way. If this interpretation is true, as I think it is, then Jesus is letting his disciples know in advance that remarkable signs of God's judgment are going to attend Israel's death throes at the hands of the Romans. Calamities that surpass even the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians more than 600 years earlier. But the chaos of the time wasn't going to be restricted to Israel. We read our history and discover that a number of other significant developments were going on in the world at that time. The Jewish insurrection against Rome lasted about three and a half years, from A.D. 67 to A.D. 70. A few holdouts, few Jewish holdouts, outside of Jerusalem, of course, they held out a little bit longer. But the larger Roman world at the time was in chaos as well. The Emperor Nero, responsible for the deaths of at least Paul and Peter and other apostles, the Emperor Nero committed suicide in AD 68, June of AD 68. The following year, saw the rise and fall of not one, not two, not three, but four emperors in the year A.D. 69, the year of the four successive emperors. Galba, Otho, Vitellius, and finally Vespasian whom the Roman Senate called back, actually, from this Judean campaign, the campaign against Jerusalem. The Senate called him back from that to assume the throne as emperor. Four emperors in one year. Politically, the world was in chaos. And this would account, from Jesus' historical standpoint, this would account for the coming dismay among the nations and the perplexity of those Gentile powers portrayed in prophets such as Daniel under the figure of the troubled and tumultuous sea. You see that same uh, metaphor used in Isaiah in a number of places. The wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot be quiet. Daniel uses it. The sea is what the, the various figures arise out of in a different dream that he interprets. In those troubled days, Israel would be suffering her death throes as a nation. Rome itself would be in political chaos. But the Lord Jesus Christ, the crucified, risen, ascended, reigning Lord Jesus Christ, by these very things, would be working his perfect will among the nations. He would be establishing his apostolic church while all of this was going on. Establishing his apostolic church, even as he's shattering rebel nations with the rod of iron. That's what we see going on in those few years, at about the two-thirds, three-quarters point of the first century A.D., I hope these lessons from redemption history past might help color your perception of the glory of God as it unfolds through redemption history present and that which is to come. Because it's all of one piece, friends. It's all of one piece. This is his story, and we are a part of it. Amid all the considerable chaos of our own times, I hope the Olivet Discourse fills you with a new courage. It should. I hope it fills you with a new confidence. I hope it fills you with a new boldness in your own proclamation and defense of the gospel. Because although times change, the fact is, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's the same. (coughs) Today and until he returns again in glory by the gospel, he's calling his elect out of every kindred, tribe, race, and tongue. From these exiles who are escaping in our own days, escaping the city of destruction, he's building his church today. So what he said of the destruction of Satan's dominion then is equally true of the destruction of every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God today. When these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. God give us the grace and the wisdom both as men and as nations To read the signs of our own times. To understand them. To repent of our sins. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And be saved. Amen.